0: Now let's turn in our Bibles to the gospel according to John chapter 1, which if you're using the church Bible you should find on page 1063, 1063. And we're going to read John chapter 1 uh, verses 1 to 18. Uh, David said to me just before the service began, how are you going to handle the whole of John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. And I don't think I said anything, uh, but the answer is, A, I don't know, and B, I don't think I am. So, we will see how we do this evening. John chapter 1, but I do want us to read the whole section because it is so wonderful for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which lightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, John, that is John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through, and this is the first time he's mentioned his name, Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Well, in St. Peter's, if it looks like, sounds like, and might just be like the beginning of a new series, then it might just be the beginning of. A new series uh, based, uh, however we discover it in the weeks that unfold, on the gospel according to John. And so, by way of introduction this evening, not accustomed to reading John chapter 1 unless it's Christmas time, perhaps let me say a number of things that will help us to understand what John is actually doing in these opening eighteen verses. Usually, described as the prologue to the gospel, and described as the prologue because John's gospel is structured in a very interesting way. It begins with a lengthy introduction here, verses 1 to 18, and it concludes in chapter 21 with a kind of appendix. The gospel actually reaches a climax at the end of chapter 20. The story really begins in a sense in verse 19 of chapter 1 and ends at the end of uh, chapter 20, but it's bookended by an introduction, this prologue on the one hand, and then by a very interesting narrative, especially about uh, Simon Peter and John, whom I take to be the author of the gospel right at the end and it's divided into two sections, chapters 1 to 12, chapters 13 to 21. Chapters 1 to 12 often described as the book of signs, because the narrative is punctuated in a very interesting way by Jesus doing signs, what elsewhere are called miracles. They are thought of as signs, They point to Jesus and they help to explain who Jesus is. And then, chapters 13 to the end of the Gospel, sometimes described as the Book of Glory, where we, in a sense, are given a a glimpse into the soul of the Lord Jesus and to his glorification, which in John's Gospel takes place through the cross. The Son of Man is glorified through His death and His resurrection. And so, there are these two sections, the book of signs that point to Jesus, the book of glory that bring us into the very heart of the Jesus to whom the signs are pointing. It is, of course, the same Jesus about whom we read in the other three Gospels, but it's Jesus from a different point of view. You know, the first three Gospels are often referred to as the synoptic Gospels because they, the Gospel writers seem to stand in the same place as they describe Jesus. Uh, they may even have used the same materials, one Gospel writer familiar with the writings of another Gospel writer, but by and large they, they take the same point of view about Jesus. It is the same Jesus that John describes, but when we, when we read through John's gospel, we learn things that aren't in the other gospels, and we're, we're, we feel, I think every Christian feels that he or she is taken into a more intimate knowledge and understanding of Jesus. Uh, we seem to be taken more inside Jesus. Actually, I don't think the difference has ever been better expressed than it was by John Calvin, with whom we are more familiar from the morning sermons than we happen to be from the evening sermons. John Calvin puts it like this in his introduction to John's gospel. He says, we could say the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, show us Christ's body, but John shows us Christ's soul. And that really is the case. Indeed, to the extent that in John's gospel, Jesus speaks so much more about Himself, about who He is, even about what it feels like to be Him. And that's part of the explanation of why we have more than three gospels. If we only had the first three gospels, we would know a wonderful Savior, but because we also have John's gospel, we have an even deeper appreciation of how wonderful this Savior, the Lord Jesus, is. And the first 18 verses, the prologue, are in some ways a bit like the overture in an opera, for those of you who are opera goers. In fact, in some ways, uh, the first 12 chapters of John's gospel are like an opera. There's not a tremendous amount of action. There's not a huge number of soloists, and there is a chorus, and there is a kind of dialogue takes place eh, between these soloists who are witnesses to Jesus Christ of several different kinds. And the chorus, the surrounding people who are trying to work out who Jesus is and often speaking critically of Him, and just like the overture in an opera uh, begins to introduce us to the musical themes that will appear in the rest of the opera, this is exactly what John does it's a very interesting thing, actually. Every single art form there is in the world has its origin in the art forms of God. Actually, whatever art form you may be interested in or engage in, that's a really interesting and important thing to know, that you can trace the patterns and the origins back to the revelation of God. And of course, that's how it is, because He is the creator of all things. Uh, people speak today about inventors, don't they? But at the end of the day, nobody really creates anything. All we do is discover the resources that the Lord has embedded in the created order, so that nobody is a creator. God is determined to make clear to us, nobody creates. However much uh, Technologist or a scientist might think he has, uh, he has, he is the one who has discovered. No, he's just been listening to the record that God has been playing. The greatness does not lie in the scientist who has made the discovery, but in the God who made the discovery possible, not in the technician who has employed chemicals or noticed physical properties that enable us, for example, to send men to the moon. The real wonder is that God has embedded in the created order. Uh, he, has, he is a father who gives his children a start and then says, now, explore it a little and find out what I've hidden in the world. And this is not insignificant because John says, in a sense, if you could trace the lines from anything in the cosmos back to their origin, you would find that that origin is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, which, of course, is why the Christian has nothing to fear from the world, nothing to fear from scientific enterprise or investigation, because at the end of the day, all that we can investigate, all that we can ever discover, is what the Creator originally put there. And the glory of being a Christian believer, and this is one of John's points, is that the One who has become our Savior is actually the One who was originally the Creator. All things were made through Him. And this is why it is so fitting that the one who was the Creator should come to His creation in order to remake that creation. Ultimately, in John's experience, you remember in the vision he has in the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos, so to remake that creation, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell, in which everything will work again properly. Well, let's dip in a little to this prologue to John's gospel and notice, uh, depending on how time flies, which it always does when you're preaching, uh, we'll go as far as we're able uh, this evening. The first thing that you would obviously notice in John's gospel is it starts in a different place from the other gospels. Actually, all the Gospels start in a different place, don't they? Matthew's Gospel essentially goes back to Abraham and traces the roots of Jesus back to Abraham, perhaps because it was written for Jewish people. Mark's Gospel, now, Mark was probably younger than Matthew, and uh, his uh, personality comes out because he was the secretary of Simon Peter, and Simon Peter's personality comes out in Mark's gospel. It's the characteristic of Peter. Peter's always in a hurry. He's always in a rush. And so, Mark doesn't bother with the first thirty years of Jesus' life. Suddenly, he's in a hurry to get you to the gospel. And so, he begins uh, when Jesus is thirty years old, misses out the the first thirty years. If you only had Mark's gospel, you would know nothing about Jesus' birth or His early life. And Luke, Luke begins with that little group of people who were essentially Old Testament believers, the last of the Old Testament believers who were looking forward to the promised Messiah and the kingdom of God and And Luke had obviously done a good deal of research. I'm pretty sure he had managed somehow or another to make contact with Jesus' own family. And so he has these stories about uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, who are relatives of Jesus, and Simeon and Anna in the temple, and uh, Mary and Joseph, all of of that little group are a, a little group of people who, in a sense, are waiting for the kingdom of God. And it's in that circle that God is pleased to give the Lord Jesus, but not John. When we see, first of all, what John says about the origin of the Word, he goes way back beyond Jesus' ministry, way back beyond that group of people waiting for redemption way back beyond Abraham, and He takes us into the mists of eternity. And He says, if you really want to understand the person about whom I am writing this book, you need to understand that His origins are from of old. Remember how Micah says that about the coming Messiah? His origins are from of old. But John makes his origins even clearer. His origins go beyond from of old, and they bring us into eternity. And that's why he begins his gospel quite deliberately you need to be almost brain-dead. If you knew anything about the Bible, you need to be brain-dead not to read the first words of John's gospel and think Genesis chapter 1. The Bible begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you see what John is doing. Uh, He's writing for people, undoubtedly, who knew the Old Testament. And he's saying, now, let me take you back there again, because there may be something in the opening words of the Bible that you didn't notice. In Genesis chapter 1, that in the beginning God meant in the beginning God speaking through His Word. He spoke all things into being by the Word of His power, and they came into being Now he's saying that word through whom God spoke all things into being is none other than the one we came to know, to touch, to see, to listen to, to believe in as our Lord Jesus Christ. And so towards the end of the gospel, he's going to say in John chapter 20, right at the very end, I want you to understand why it is that I've written all of these things about the Lord Jesus, and the reason is quite simply, so that you will come to believe in Him and to understand who He really is. In the beginning, he says, was the Word. And notice what he adds. First of all, the Word was with God. The Word was with God. The preposition he uses there, if you're interested in prepositions, which in the Bible are hugely significant, is the preposition towards. One of the commentators has a very neat way of uh, translating that. Actually, is a man who wrote his Ph.D. dissertation at Princeton University on one Greek preposition, and the way he translates these words is as follows the Word was face-to-face face with God. The Word was face-to-face face with God. You know, there's a kind of etiquette. I hope it still holds because it's, I think it's been an important etiquette in the Western world, and that is that a married woman should not lock eyes with any man who is not either father, grandfather, husband, or son. Does that still pertain among those of you who are under 60? You understand that? That in our culture there is something about locking eyes with a man or a woman, if you are the opposite sex, gazing into their eyes that is not a casual matter at all. And the truth of the matter is, if I can put it this way, you and I dare not lock eyes with God. If you know anything about yourself and your own heart, and you can kind of fast-forward yourself from here and now to standing in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think I can guarantee you the first thing that you will do by nature is to look down and to be ashamed. You wouldn't dream of locking eyes with him. He is too pure, too holy. Remember how in Isaiah 6 we're given this amazing vision that Isaiah had of, of he's, he is in the heavenly temple and he sees these creatures that have six wings. Six wings. I'm looking forward to meeting these six-winged creatures. And he tells us exactly what they were doing with their wings. And they were flying with only two of them. You only need two wings, I think, don't you? Airplanes don't have six wings. You just need two wings to fly. Keep your balance there. And then the two wings are covering their feet, which is, remember, Moses, take your shoes off your feet. This is holy ground. It's a symbol that they sense. They're in the presence of the holy God. Now, what's important to grasp about these creatures is, my friends, they have never sinned. They have never sinned. But they cover their faces in the presence of God. They do not lock eyes with God they cover their faces. Why do they do that if they've never sinned? I mean, why are they not able to kind of fly into the presence of God and, hello there, you know, we're here? Well, because they know who He is. And what that vision teaches us is this kind of stunning fact that created holiness, these strange creatures, created holiness can feel that it might disintegrate in the presence of uncreated holiness. There is an intensity. And so, they, they are always crying. Apparently, they never get bored saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is the fullness of His glory. Now, why do they not get bored saying that? Imagine next Sunday, David comes in and he says, We're going to try something today. We're just going to say, Holy. We're going to be like Seraphim today. We're all going to say, Holy and for the next hour and a quarter, we're all going to say, holy. And You know, eventually after ten minutes, some of us are no longer saying, holy, fifteen minutes. You know, there's a few left. Then people start to leave. Then some of us lie down exhausted, and uh, it's only the most determined who's going to be standing or she's standing on her feet saying, I'm going to see this to the end. David said we'd do it for an hour and fifteen minutes. Why are they not bored? Well, why is a why is a man not bored telling his wife that he loves her after five minutes of marriage, 10 minutes of marriage, 10 years of marriage, 30 years of marriage, 40 years of marriage, 50 years of marriage, 60 years of marriage? Why is he not bored with her? Because he knows every time he says, I love you, he's still not got to the bottom of why it is that he loves her or what it is about her that draws out His love. And that's the same with God. That's why eternity will not be boring. That's why God's holiness is not boring. It's almost as though these seraphim are, they're, they're chanting, holy, and then it dawns on them, boy, He really is holy. And so they say it again, it's drawn out of them by who He is. And all the while, they veil their faces. Um, I don't know if the wings of heavenly creatures are porous and you can, you know, you, you get a little glimpse, but you, you see what the picture is saying, but not the Word. Just these opening words are telling us this one is different. This one belongs to an entirely different category of being even from these seraphim that surround the throne. And he lives forever face to face with God, locking eyes with God, looking into the eyes of God. Is there a, don't put your hand up. Is there anyone in the room who's just recently, as they say, fallen in love? I don't know why they use the verb fallen in love. Fall in love with somebody? Or can you remember falling in love? remember falling in love? What did you want to do? You know, was, was, the, was, the, was the quintessence of falling in love that you wanted to play squash with her? That's, remove that man. He's laughing far too loudly. <laughs> I can tell you it's not. Uh, my wife played squash for our university, and the last thing I was going to do was play squash with her. That would, have, that would have given me no opportunity for the future. No, you, you just want to be with her, don't you? You just want to look at her. Isn't you know, it one of the most amazing things in the world that people who aren't very attractive fall in love with each other and think the other person is really absolutely fascinating and lovely? And here's, here is the, here's the ultimate perfection of that, that in the presence of this infinitely holy God, the Word is one who can gaze into His face. And if I can put it this way, because this is a description of the Father and the Son, the Son finds His Father endlessly lovable and endlessly fascinating and then he adds what is actually the logical implication of that but just in case we didn't draw the logical conclusion he says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and this of course is this of course is introducing us to this is introducing us to the like the key to the old testament has it ever struck you that the the apostles do not seem to have been taken totally by surprise by Jesus' teaching about the Trinity? Uh, Has that ever struck you? You know, they they don't seem to get… they they don't even ask the kinds of questions that theologians have asked for the last 2,000 years, how do we put all this together? Why are they not utterly shocked? because they didn't see what Jesus was teaching as anything but the key to some of the puzzles and mysteries they'd seen embedded in the Old Testament Scriptures. And this is part of the key to the Old Testament. What John is saying is you Have you read these passages about God and His Word and His Spirit? They're they're actually there in the first chapter of the Bible. And this strange figure of the angel of the Lord who seems to speak with the authority of the Lord, and these strange verses about David and my Lord and my Lord's Lord, and and oh, they're kind of unexplained mysteries. And here in the very first words of his gospel, John begins to explain them. The secret of all this is that when we trace all things back to their origin, of course there's more to say. He'll tell us later on about the Holy Spirit too. But when we trace, when we trace back the footsteps of Jesus, we eventually see that those footsteps go right into the presence of God and then right into the very person of God Himself. And He's really telling us If you're going to understand this world in which you live, if you're going to understand the gospel, if you're going to understand Jesus, you need to know that in His very in-being, there is God with God, there is the Word with God, there is the Son with the Father, so that Jesus, Jesus' beginning is not a historical beginning. Indeed, the truth of the matter is that Jesus had no beginning. What He had was a beginning in our flesh, but not a beginning in His own person. So that when you come to know Jesus, and this is the point that He is really making when you come to know Jesus, you have been brought into contact with the secret of the cosmos, the secret of of all things. And he's going to go on to explain that in what follows, how it's for this reason that Jesus comes, as he says, from the very bosom of the Father. It's for that reason that we find ultimate light for our darkness in Jesus, and ultimate life for our death in Jesus. And to those of us who are Christians, uh, in a way, one of the things this is saying, which I'm sure all of us who are Christians have discovered, is that coming to know Jesus is a far bigger deal than we imagined when we first came to know Him. Most of us, we come. Why do we come? We, we come because we realize we need a Savior, and John's gospel is full of Jesus as a Savior. But John is saying, that's the story I'm going to tell you I'm going to tell you all this so that you may believe in him and so that you may have eternal life. But I want to just give a clue here in the prologue as to who this he is that you're going to come to know. Because he is the origin of all things, he is the one through whom all things were created, he is the one by whom all things hold together. And you understand what this means if you become a Christian. It means that you don't know everything about everything. It also means you don't know everything about anything, but it does mean you know something about everything. And what that something is is that it is this Jesus whom you have come to know who is actually the creator of the ends of the earth, who is the one who has ever lived in the bosom of the Father, Who knows what it is to be face to face with God, to know God through and through, and to be known by God through and through the knowledge of a Son, of His Father, the knowledge of the Father, of His Son. Of course, all this is in the bond of the Holy Spirit. But this is why it's possible for you to come to know God, because it's as though what happens when you come to trust in Jesus, is that He takes you by the hand, and He says to you now, we're beginning an adventure together, you and I, and I am going to lead you right into the knowledge of the God who is the creator and sustainer through me of the whole universe. And this is why in John seventeen 3, He'll go on to pray for His disciples and say, Father, I want them to have eternal life, And this is eternal life, that they might know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. And this is a tremendous message. We're done with verse 1. Actually, we're not done with verse 1. We'll come back to verse 1, God willing, next Sunday night. But why is this so important? for among other reasons, there are many leading intellectuals who are saying to us, we've got to stop speaking about a universe. And given their presuppositions, they are dead right because they have nothing in their system of thinking that unifies anything. And so, this is You see, this is the reason why some of the greatest intellectuals in history and some of the greatest scientists of the present day, what they have been looking for is something that will unify everything, but it mustn't be God and it mustn't be Christ. It mustn't be, because as John says here, they're in the darkness. And as he says later on, they love the darkness rather than the light. And it would humble their minds and their spirits to come to acknowledge that uh, actually they are not able to give any explanation of anything. At most, they can describe reality, but they have no explanation for it. Isn't that the case? Isn't it amazing how many brilliant scientists have believed? How did things come into being big bang? Big bang. Now, they're arguing about that just now. As though big bangs caused themselves. No explanation. And here is the confidence that John gives to the simplest believer. I may not be able to understand all their mathematical formula, but I've come to know the one upon whom those mathematical formula depend. And that's everything. I had an amazingly learned colleague who had done a Harvard Ph.D. in mathematics and had a Ph.D. in theology, just a uh, brilliant-minded man, and I remember him giving the faculty of the seminary where I taught uh, a post-sabbatical presentation, which was the price you paid for having six months to go and write a book, and uh, very brilliant people in the room. He puts up in a a PowerPoint presentation this kind of mass of mathematical symbols, and we all burst out laughing, even those who had some knowledge of mathematics. He says, look "Look at that. Look at that. (laughs) He said, that, that's the formula for the Milky Way. And then immediately when the word way was coming out of his mouth, the next PowerPoint picture came up, a Hubble telescope picture. He said, that is the Milky Way. And you see, there's all the difference in the world, isn't there? One is a metaphorical description of a reality that uses humanly invented symbols to try to describe but even in the process of giving the description, reduces the reality. And here I am as a, you know, I better not tell you about my prowess in mathematics, and I'm sitting there thinking that's gobbledygook. I couldn't converse with the people who write that kind of stuff on the board. But then the Milky Way itself goes up in this picture, and I think to think, that I know the one who created this, and that the one through whom this was created and is sustained, as John says here, from being face to face with God, has taken our human nature in order to be face to face with us, in order that by His grace we might be taken to the place where we too can gaze into the face of the Creator of the universe and say, and He is my Father. And that's how He he kind of comes to a conclusion, doesn't He? He says, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Well, that's our greatest privilege as Christians, isn't it? To know God and therefore to know something about everything, and to know that His hand is upon our lives. And if we're not Christians, it's the most important thing we could come to realize, that we we don't actually know God. And therefore, no matter how much we know about everything, we don't really understand anything, because at the end of the day, there's nothing to unify our understanding so that the humblest christian believer is in a safer and better place than the most brilliant scientist or philosopher who has never bowed the knee to the lord jesus christ well after tonight you're thinking the series on john's gospel is going to be a long series on the prologue to john's gospel So, we're on an adventure together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You this evening for Your presence with us, that we sense when we read Your Word that You yourself are the one who has spoken this Word. And as as we learn in the Scriptures that You are speaking to us through it. And we pray as Your Holy Spirit it applies this Word to us and to our different situations and circumstances, that that no matter what we do in life, where we are in life, how our lives are going, that as You Yourself speak to us, we may be conscious that since You are the Creator of all things and the One who has given the Son, who is able to gaze into Your face and truly and fully knows You and is able truly and fully to make you known that wherever we are, whatever is happening to us, we are well anchored into eternity because we know the one who is our Father through Jesus Christ. So, help us. We pray to live this out during the week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.